From New York, this is Democracy Now! What's going on in Mali is devastating. There's so much tragedy, and this is trauma on top of 100-plus years of colonial trauma that created the conditions that allowed this type of tragedy to happen. We have theft of water, theft of land, and so much loss of our ecosystem that created this condition that put us in this predicament. The death toll from the devastating fires on the Hawaiian island of Maui has reached 55 and is expected to rise. The historic town of Lahaina has been destroyed in what's now being described as the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's history. We'll speak to two native Hawaiian activists from Maui about the fires, the legacy of colonialism, and the climate crisis. The fire is a tragic symbol of this trajectory terminal point, like where it all ends up if you continue down this this mode of extraction um, as a way to live. Um, but it's also like the it also contains the most deep and durable relics of our history of resistance. We'll also speak to a fire scientist at the University of Hawaii about how the climate emergency fueled the deadly fires. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Hawaii, the death toll from the historic Maui wildfires has reached at least 55 people and decimated the town of Lahaina, once the epicenter of the Kingdom of Hawaii. One of the more than 1,700 structures that were destroyed is the Na'aikani O Maui Cultural Center. Earlier today, Hawaii Governor Josh Green described the sheer scale of the disaster. What we saw was likely the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's state history. We are seeing loss of life here. As you know, uh, the number has been rising, and we will continue to see loss of life. We also have seen many hundreds of homes uh, destroyed, and that's going to take a great deal of time to recover from. But that's why we come together. But we talked to an old gentleman who hadn't seen anything like this uh, ever in his life, a wildfire that took a whole city. His neighbors have all lost their homes. His home was intact, but he was in tears. This is a gentleman that doesn't cry easily. Some residents questioned why Hawaii's emergency warning system didn't go off as blazes rage closer and closer to their homes. President Biden's declared a major disaster as the Hawaiian tragedy has shown a spotlight on the urgency of the unfolding climate catastrophe, as well as the ongoing exploitation and occupation of the islands by the U.S. After headlines, we'll spend the hour on Maui wildfires. Tensions are running high in West Africa after the regional bloc ECOWAS ordered the activation of a standby force for possible intervention in Niger in response to the July 26 military coup. This is Nigerian President Bola Tinubu speaking from yesterday's emergency ECOWAS summit in Nigeria's capital, Abuja. And we see from the community of this extraordinary summit that no option is taken off the table, including the use of force as a last resort. We remain steadfast in our commitment to supporting Nigeria in the journey towards peaceful and democratic stability in the country. 
The Associated Press reports the Nigerian military coup leaders threatened to kill deposed President Mohamed Bazoum if any military actions attempted to restore his rule. Meanwhile, The Intercept's reporting the U.S. has trained at least five members of the new ruling junta in Niger. The U.S. has since paused security assistance to Niger's military. African officers trained by the U.S. military have now taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008, including in Burkina Faso and Mali. In Ecuador, one suspect is dead and six others have been arrested in connection with the assassination of the Ecuadorian presidential candidate, Fernando Villavicencio. Officials said all suspects in custody are Colombian and alleged members of a drug trafficking group. Ecuador is now under a nationwide state of emergency, while authorities continue to search for the possible mastermind behind Villavicencio's assassination. This is the Ecuadorian defense minister, Luis Lara. The armed forces have begun the immediate deployment of their troops throughout the national territory so that there will be an armed forces presence in every city and every town. They will remain there until the conclusion of the electoral process. Citizens have the guarantee that the armed forces will provide the necessary security for the polls. The vote of Ecuadorians will be the best response to the mafias and their allies. Via Vicencio's murder has thrown Ecuador into further disarray after President Guillermo Lasso dissolved the opposition-led National Assembly in May, blocking efforts by lawmakers to impeach him over accusations of corruption and embezzlement. Meanwhile, Ecuador's snap elections are still scheduled for next Sunday, August 20th, though several presidential and other candidates have suspended their campaigns. In Burma, at least 23 Rohingya refugees are dead after their boat sank as they attempted to reach Malaysia. Over two dozen others are still missing. Thousands of Rohingya Muslims have taken on the perilous trek to Malaysia or Indonesia after fleeing genocide and persecution in Burma. Five U.S. citizens imprisoned in Iran have been transferred to house arrest in what's reportedly a first step towards being released. Their freedom would come in exchange for Iranian prisoners in the U.S. and for Tehran gaining access to $6 billion in their frozen oil revenue to go towards humanitarian needs. The dual citizen prisoners were jailed in Iran on unsubstantiated spying charges. The move comes after two years of negotiations, according to The New York Times. This is Secretary of State Antony Blinken speaking Thursday. So this is a this is a positive step, but um, I don't want to get ahead of its uh, its conclusion because there's more work to be done to actually bring them home. My belief is that uh, this is the beginning of the end of their nightmare and the nightmare that their families have experienced. Blinken said any exchange will not include sanctions relief for Iran. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a sweeping settlement deal for OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma that would shield the Sackler family from civil lawsuits in exchange for paying out $6 billion to thousands of plaintiffs, including state and local governments, that have been devastated by the opioid epidemic. The Justice Department challenged the settlement, which extends bankruptcy protections against liability for Sackler family members and what the U.S. Solicitor General called an abuse of the bankruptcy system. Opioid overdoses have killed over half a million people in the United States over the past 20 years, according to the CDC, including prescription and illicit drugs. 
The Louisiana Pardon Board has begun scheduling clemency hearings for the state's death row prisoners one day after Governor John Bell Edwards ordered the move. This comes after the board last month refused to set hearings for 56 death row prisoners who filed a mass petition to commute their sentences before the Democratic Governor Edwards leaves office next year. He opposes the death penalty. In a Fort Pierce, Florida court, Donald Trump and his aide and co-defendant Walt Nauda pleaded not guilty Thursday to three additional charges in the case around Trump's mishandling of classified documents. Trump did not appear at the courthouse in person. The charges came as part of an updated indictment accusing Trump and two aides of trying to delete security footage at his Mar-a-Lago estate. In other Trump news, federal prosecutors proposed a start date of January 2, 2024, for the trial related to Trump's bid to overturn the 2020 elections. Mexican officials are demanding Texas remove its border buoys from the Rio Grande, saying the floating barrier aimed at blocking asylum seekers from reaching the United States was installed on Mexico's side of the river. Between the buoys, there are circular saw blades. Dozens of asylum seekers, including children, have been severely injured. Last week, the bodies of two asylum seekers were found in the Rio Grande, one of them trapped in the buoy barrier. Mexico's Foreign Secretary Alicia Barcena spoke Thursday after meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in D.C. On the buoy issue in Texas, we're deeply concerned about the issue, but thankful because the U.S. Justice Department has filed the lawsuit against the Texas government, and this helps us very much because we're talking about a delicate situation on our border, in our rivers, in the Rio Bravo, in the Rio Grande, but most of the buoys are on the Mexican side. Democrats have renewed their calls for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to resign following yet another bombshell report from ProPublica detailing even more lavish gifts from right-wing billionaires, including 38 destination vacations. California Congress member Ted Lieu said Thomas had, quote, brought shame upon himself and the United States Supreme Court. No government official, elected or unelected, could ethically or legally accept gifts of that scale, he should resign immediately, Lou said. And Jess Search, the award-winning producer and co-founder of Doc Society, has died at the age of 54 after a battle with brain cancer. The visionary filmmaker was a champion of documentary film, which she believed had the power to change the world, often telling others, quote, if you're going to move people to act, first you have to move them. During her 18 years at Doc Society, formerly known as Brit Doc, the organization supported such films as Laura Poitras's Oscar-winning Citizen Four about NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. More recently, Just Search was an executive producer on the acclaimed While We Watched documentary by director Vinay Shukla about the Indian journalist Ravish Kumar, who took on the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Oscar-winning filmmaker Lucy Walker was one of many who paid tribute to Jess Search, saying, quote, she championed so many underdogs because she loved them. She knew their potential because she'd once been the underdog. Jess Search is survived by her wife, filmmaker Beatty Finzi, and their two children. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
We turn now to the Hawaiian island of Maui, where a devastating hurricane-fueled wire fire has killed at least 55 people. The catastrophic fire destroyed the historic town of Lahaina and left thousands of people homeless in what's being described as the worst natural disaster in Hawaii's history. On Thursday, President Biden issued a major disaster declaration for the state, freeing up federal funds. CNN reports the fire in Maui is now the second deadliest blaze in the United States in a century, trailing only the 2018 campfire in California, which killed 85 people. And the death toll in Maui is expected to rise as search crews reach areas destroyed by the fast-moving fires. Hospitals are overwhelmed with burn patients. Power and cell service remains out for much of the area. Authorities say the fire destroyed all the buildings in the historic section of Lahaina, which once served as the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, says it looks like a bomb went off in the town. Later in the show, we'll speak to two native Hawaiian activists in Maui. But we begin with a horrifying account from a man from Fresno, California, named Wise Fonselinkum, who survived the fire by racing into the ocean with his wife and five children. The family was visiting Lahaina for dinner when they got trapped by the fire. And we tried to make way back, but we, we couldn't. We got stuck. We tried to come back. Uh, we ended up in Front Street, my family and I, and, and it was just black smoke coming above us, and traffic was stuck. Uh, we were there uh, by the seawall, by Bubble Gump, I believe, and um, we got really real when we saw the planes. And I had to think fast. We had to get out. We left our vehicle. And my, my, myself, my wife, and our five kids, we all got in the ocean. Uh, we found a floating board that we hung on to. And everything, we were out there floating. And this is so surreal. And the, everything was burning around, explosions, cars blowing up. Like, embers was flying. Just, just, we couldn't breathe. We, wouldn't, no, just, just, we couldn't breathe. There's no air. It's just the carbon monoxide. And, and we held on as best as we could. My, my, my wife, my kids, my older ones helped with the younger ones, and we, we tried to stick out the ground. The waves was trying to take us out to the ocean. We had to come back. There were some locals that helped us, too, that were with us. They're really great people. These people are amazing. And um, we were out for three hours, and we, we, we hung on to the seawall as best as we could until we found the little cove area where we were about for an hour. Um, with uh, two of the locals were with us and my family. I, I found some sheet metal to cover them because there was just still fire all around us. And embers were flying out, would cover, cover them and cover myself as best as I could. At about 9.30 p.m., um, fire came to rescue us. And, and we walked through the town, the little corridor they made, and everything was just burned, um, everything was destroyed. And yeah, we were at the, the uh, shelter for that night. The final fight, um, instant survival. My adrenaline was rushing, it just, it had to calm down. I, I, I worked in the ER for 15 years. You gotta help, uh, you gotta take a deep breath, you gotta do this. You know, um, we did, my kids were amazing, they, they were really good. Uh, a few points, my daughter, my little girl, was like, Daddy, you okay, Daddy? My other ones, my wife, too, we, we, we'll, be, we can, we'll be okay. They got us, you know, and they're really stopped, tired, exhausted. And, and, and so far, you know, this ocean almost sucked my kids away a few times. But, but yeah, we we, um, we we stuck together. We, we held on. And, uh, we, uh, we're not going to die this way. No. And, and we, we're here. We're alive.
That was, we say, Fonse Lincoln, who survived the fire in Maui by racing into the ocean with his wife and five children. When we come back, we'll speak to two native Hawaiian activists in Maui about the catastrophic fires. Stay with us. We belong here by the Hawaiian singer Kalanipea. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue to look at the catastrophic wildfires in Maui. We turn to Kaniela Singh, who is the national director of the Green New Deal Network. Ng is a seventh-generation native Hawaiian from Maui. I spoke to him on Thursday night asking him to talk about what's happened to Maui and the historical significance of Lahaina Town. Sure. First off, thank you for having me and centering this issue. Um, I will preface by saying that I've been really busy, but when I'm not doing these interviews, I just tend to like break down. These are really somber times. Um, I was born and raised in Maui. I'm Kanaka Maui, Native Hawaiian, come from seven generations, and our island is on fire. Uh, our most historic town was set ablaze by wildfires. Hundreds of people have been evacuated and hospitalized. The death toll is climbing and people are searching for loved ones right now. So Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Joe Manchin, oil companies, and anyone in power who denies climate change to me are the arth- are the arsonists here and we're living the climate emergency. So it, it, it is sad times right now. It's heartening to see the community come together and, you know, deliver goods to the families in needs. Um, fundraising has been incredible for the direct relief, but what, what, what I'm wondering personally is once the recovery efforts start to unfold and the cameras are gone, uh, who's going to be left more powerful or less powerful? Uh, are people still going to be paying attention when when the recovery work is going to last for years? And is that going to make community members stronger, or is it going to make the people who have mismanaged the land and water and created the conditions for these fires to happen um, even more powerful? And that's that's what we're focused on at Green New Deal Network right now. Aniela, can you talk about specifically? Uh, the friends, the family, what has happened to those that have been devastated by the fires, uh, particularly in Lahaina? Can you tell us some of those escape stories, some of what has taken place with the fires so suddenly wiping out this historic city? And then talk about the historic nature of Lahaina as the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom and what that means. 
we're a tropical island here on Maui. We're not supposed to have wildfires. This came as a shock to everyone. There's not enough firefighters here. We can't ship them over from the next state. We're an island. So everyone right now is feeling a bit overwhelmed. As it occurred, we saw community members jumping into the ocean which with nowhere else to go, just floating and watching their homes being reduced into ashes. Um, the, the death toll went from six to 36 all of a sudden, and there are still firefighters, Red Cross members out there searching for our loved ones. Um, it was... <sighs> It was apocalyptic. The scene was something that, uh, you know, you, you, you would only see in a movie. Um, but the reality is like, this is becoming quite the norm now and it will become more so in the future. Lahaina town is actually, it's, it's often characterized as a tourist town, but the people who live there, which should be the focus, uh, tend to be some of the most rooted native Hawaiians that I've ever met. They're the types of their families from generations ago created aquaculture, which like the West is only kind of learning about now. Um, you know, I used to work with them to uh, like figure out better ways that Noah could manage like fisheries. Uh, they're really the keepers of the ancestral knowledge and um, you know, some of their uh, yeah, some like most of the folks that are evacuated are, are uh, like Kanaka Maoli or, or um, other like immigrant um, folks. And uh, my heart goes out to, to those families. When you say it's a tourist town, that's because it's historic. Um, so talk about what that means. Give us a history lesson about Hawaii and about Maui and how it relates to the mainland United States, even how it became a part of the United States. Sure. So Lahaina town was a thriving center of Hawaii. It was like the heart of Hawaii before, not just statehood, but before Hawaii was even a territory of the United States. So if you start from one end of front street and walk to the other, it's like a Disneyland ride of through the colonial timeline of capitalism in Hawaii, starting from royalty, going to whaling, sandalwood, sugar, and pineapple tourism to luxury. Um, and to me, the fire is a tragic symbol of this trajectory's terminal point, like where it all ends up. If you continue down this, this mode of extraction, um, as a way to live. Um, but it's also like the, it also contains the most deep and durable relics of our history of resistance, the museums, the architecture, the infrastructure, the banyan tree, the oldest and largest in the United States, which just burnt um, 150 years old this year. Um, it includes all that, but also just the fact of how slow it was to develop is a testament to the people-powered, usually native-led resistance that each industry faced along the way. You refer to the raging wildfires as a result of colonial greed. Explain. Yeah, so there's two facets to this. First is climate change. The National Weather Service says the cause of this fire was a down power line and the spread um, because of hurricane force winds and the spread was caused by dry vegetation and low humidity. Those are all functions of climate change. This isn't disputable. This isn't political. It's unfortunately, it has become politicized, but it's a matter of fact. 
climate pollution, corporate polluters that set a blanket of pollution in the air that is overheating our planet, contributed, caused the conditions that led to this fire. In addition, there's mismanagement of land. The original big five oligarchy in Hawaii, missionary families that took over our economy and government, they continue on today as some of our largest political donors and landowners and corporations. They've been grabbing land and diverting water away from this area for a very long time now, for generations. And Lahaina was actually a wetland. You could take a, like Viola Church, you could have boats circulating the church back back in the day. Um, but, you know, because they needed water for their corporate ventures like golf courses and hotels and monocropping, um, that, that has ended. So the natural form of Lahaina would have never caught on fire. These disasters are anything but natural. So yes, colonial greed in the fact that they caused the pollution that warmed our planet and set hurricanes like this to become the norm and the gross mismanagement of our land and water, which the Green New Deal actually is about returning both, um, you know, both mitigating climate change, building resilience, but also returning the stewardship of land and water to the people. Can you talk about the dry land right now? I mean, you have uh, Hurricane Dora hundreds of miles away. Um, the wind was intense. Uh, but the drought that existed, that relationship to climate change. Yeah, that's right. So we, growing up on this island, we saw maybe one or two fires, and they're very contained when things got to this drought factor. It's never been anything close to this. This shocked even even like the climate scientists that I've worked with over the years were, were shocked by this, by this fire. And a lot of it has to do with these dry conditions growing up. My dad would drive us to church and he'd point out to the sugar cane and he'd say, when you're my age, all the sugar cane would be gone. And I was like, you know, okay, sure. Uh, this is, it's such a central part of Maui, but he was right. The sugar is gone. And the reason why is because, one of these big five oligarchical uh, corporations that I spoke of knew that the sugar wasn't profitable, but they continued monocropping most of the island in order to get some tax breaks for agriculture. Now, I grew up in a, in a community where it would rain cane, cane ash on us, and it was like fun. I didn't realize we we're all getting asthma. We we're in environmental justice community. Um, so, but you know, there were people that fought against the cane burning, um, and the corporation ended up blaming the activists, uh, for the, for the sugar shutting down, pitting the union workers against the community. Um, the result now is just like a fallow, really dry land, um, across the whole central Valley of our Island. Um, and really if, you know, if community members and, Union members were to unite and have been organized uh, years ago. Um, we could have had a much different future. Uh, and uh, that's still something uh, that I think we we should continue working to build is that is that labor and uh, environmental uh, unity.
Can you talk about the April survey of homeless people, unhoused people? I think it was something like 704 unhoused people in Maui County, among them 244 suffering from mental health disabilities. The unhoused crisis among Native Americans, uh, Native Hawaiians, and what do you know about Native Hawaiians uh, who were unhoused and how the wildfires have affected them? Yeah, um, I think there's a certain perception of Native Hawaiians who are unsheltered. Um, that's not that does not fit with reality. Some of the unsheltered Hawaiian communities that continue today were occupations of land that was getting seized, um, and they're like, "Look, if we we don't want to cooperate with this with this new." extractive economy that y'all created. So we're going to live on by ourselves in our own community on this beach. We're going to uh, govern ourselves and they're quite organized and they're living in a way that's subsistent and in harmony with nature. Now it's not to be glamorized. A lot of, a lot of these folks face some really dire conditions, not being a part of this um, capitalist system, but a lot of them are doing it based on really strong and sensible beliefs um, now, when a climate crisis hits, uh, when a disaster hits, it's going to impact these people first and worse, uh, no doubt. And we need to make sure that both relief and recovery efforts in the longer term um, are prioritizing um, the low income um, and indigenous people that that are some some are still unaccounted for. Some don't even have IDs, um, and we, and you know they need to be front of mind with it with everything we do. Uh, from you know day zero when the disaster breaks to years out when we're recovering. The wildfires occurred on the same day that President Biden said in an interview that he had practically declared a climate emergency, but he has not actually formally done that. What would that mean? Yeah, um, I've just been frantically trying to make sure that my loved ones are okay. But I also work on climate. This is my job. And I, as soon as I start thinking about that statement from president Biden, I just get so incensed. This is a climate emergency. There's no practical, practically declared it. You either believe it or not. And I think as bad as Republicans have been by denying climate, Democrats are just as culpable by, by not doing enough. Scientists say that we need to be investing at least $1 trillion a year in the clean energy transition. We need to end and phase out, deny all new fossil fuel permits and and really re- empower the communities to build back ourselves democratically. That's that's the solution for it. And President Biden announced his second term, but he hasn't told us how he's going to finish the job. He needs to lay out that vision, what we've been demanding from a Green New Deal, if he wants communities that got him elected to come out, that base of climate voters that happen to be predominantly Black, Indigenous, and low-income people. Like We need something forward looking to come out because right now, like 
I'm not even thinking about voting, right? Like nobody in Lahaina is thinking about whether or not they support Biden. Like give us something, you know, at least let us see, be seen. Uh, so, you know, I think that's that sense of urgency. Even even me who who is in this climate work full time and see these events unfold elsewhere until it hits you at home and it's people, you know, grocery stores, you shop at schools, your kids go to your church after you've been burnt down. You're not going to understand the urgency. Like it is shocking. We're not talking 10 years from now. We're having, these things are happening right now. It could happen to your home tomorrow. That's the urgency we're dealing with. And we need to act accordingly. So no, practically speaking, like we need to move now and do everything we can. And can you tell us more about the importance of indigenous wisdom and practices in addressing the climate catastrophe? Sure. Yeah. So going into Lahaina, the people that actually lived there for generations are the keepers of some of the most profound indigenous knowledge that I have ever met. Um, they understood subsistence fishery, um, how native plants were buffers against like, you know, disasters, uh, how to, um, you know, create regenerative agricultural practices. Uh, and it's that, it's that view of the world where, um, you know, our success isn't determined by how much we hoard, but, but rather how much we produce for others and share and where like our, um, our economy is, is not based on how well the rich are doing, but how, 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 how many people, how many of us can actually thrive. Like it's that it's, it's not just indigenous knowledge, but it's that value system that really needs to be, um, reestablished. So, you know, I think over the years, especially in, in my line of work, there's been more resources for indigenous folks to lead frontline fights against bad projects but the intervention that really needs to happen is indigenous leaders also need to be resourced to build the good. They need to be the purveyors of and architects of the, the new green and like uh, community rooted world that, that that's still possible, even in these dire times. Finally, would you like to leave us with some images that you have been living through over these last few days like the banyan tree, where you show us uh, uh, when you um, uh, put out on social media the before and after the wildfires, but other images or stories of people's bravery in trying to preserve um, what you have known for so long. Yeah, I mean, as as we're speaking, there's people that still haven't found their loved ones. Um, a lot of the friends that I grew up with, like I come from a lower income neighborhood, they're firefighters. I ran into one on the way here and I was like, Hey, you're doing a great job. And he was just sweating and like started crying and, you know, barely looked like he hasn't slept in days. Uh, hotels are letting residents in without cost to sleep. Um, multiple businesses are just letting people drop off goods and they're shipping it three to four times a day, they're leaving their doors open 24 hours. So there is that sense of, you know, this is an island. We're all in this together. And um, that sense of mutual aid and solidarity 
is really carrying us through. Um, and it, it's been, it's been quite remarkable to witness. Um, but you know, don't want to leave you with some toxic positivity either. Like these are hard times. And unless we take urgent action now, um, it'll only get worse. And what is the, do you feel is the most important thing that president Biden, the federal government, uh, people should be pushing for right now? Well, right now we need direct aid, but there needs to be a longer focus on, um, recovery that these, we can't rebuild the community in a few weeks. It's going to take years and we need to do it intentionally, not just making sure, not just bringing us back to the status quo because the status quo is what led us here, but making sure that we have more democratic and community controlled uh, institutions that come out of this. Unfortunately, the groups that are best poised to deploy direct aid because of their institutional connections are also the most likely to enable disaster capitalists from exploiting this situation. Um, so we need to create, we need to understand that, you know, as we're like trying, as people want to help that they're um, resourcing groups that have an eye um, towards community organizations to, to, to organizers that will actually be there once the cameras leave and we'll be rebuilding uh, from the ground up over the course of the long run. And one more time, can you tell us why the banyan tree is so important? Yeah. I mean, the banyan tree is, is so iconic. There's like 16 trunks. It's the largest in the United States. It just turned 150 years old in April and the images of it being completely toasted is heartbreaking. Now I have hope because trees have deep roots, especially of that age that it will continue on. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the vision in my mind, right? Like as we rebuild as a community, as we realize the vision of a green new deal nationally and globally, um, the banyan tree also regrows its leaves and is a positive symbol for what's to come. Kaniela Ng, the national director of the green new deal network, seventh generation native Hawaiian speaking to us from Maui. And I especially thank my little pup, Zazu, for staying quiet during that interview, which makes me think about all of the fauna and the flora destroyed as well uh, on Maui. And of course, most importantly, the people. Coming up, we speak to another Native Hawaiian activist and a fire scientist at the University of Hawaii. Back in 20 seconds. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Cause I'm tired of these scenes. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Silver magic ships you carry, jumpers, coke, sweet Mary Jane. Sugar man, met a false friend on a lonely, dusty road. 
Sugar Man by Rodriguez. Sixto Rodriguez, the subject of the 2012 Oscar-winning documentary Searching for Sugar Man, passed away this week at the age of 81 in his home in Detroit. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we get an update now on the impacts of the wildfire in Lahaina, the area in West Maui that's of historical importance to indigenous people, entire neighborhoods wiped out by the wildfire, including the Na'akaini o Maui Cultural Center, which had a massive archive lost to the flames. The head of the center said, quote, the place is burnt to the ground. We're joined now on Maui by Noilani Ahia, a Kanaka Maoli activist, longtime organizer in Lahaina Town. She's also the co-founder of the organization Mauna Medic Healers Hui and is involved in mutual aid efforts as the community responds to the devastation. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Noilani. It is an honor to have you with us. Can you describe, uh, from your vantage point, where you are, and especially uh, the cultural center is the center of Lahaina, in terms of what has been lost at the center and overall in the town. Yes, thank you so much, Amy. It's so good to be here. Um, Na'aikani Omaui Cultural Center was founded um, about 20 years ago in historic Lahaina town, and it happens to sit adjacent to a very sacred area of Maui called um, Moku'ula and Moku'hinia. Uh, and this is a, a traditional place, what we would call a vahipana or a sacred place, um, dating back to the 1500s, where one of our um, one of our former kings who who presided over the islands with peace lived and his sacred family was birthed there. And uh, we have stories that carry us down today that connect us back to that place, that reroute us. And this island, um, Moku'ula, was in the middle of a wetland. It, it was lush and beautiful and green. Um, because of settler colonialism and because of the impositions of of the settler government, it was covered over um, a long time ago, and there's baseball fields now on it, and uh, tennis courts, and uh, the Naikani Omawi Cultural Center has been working to get, get the get the access in order to restore Moku'ula and to clean it up and make sure it's a place of reference again. And the folks at Naikani have been working for decades on all kinds of issues, protecting burials, um, protecting land right issues. Um, and just generally being there for the community to provide classes and workshops and cultural practice um, and cultural protocol. And that building also housed a collection of artifacts as well as uh, historical documents, old maps, um, just priceless things that are all lost in the blink of an eye, it was burned to the ground, and all of those things are lost. It also had a collection from an esteemed kupuna, esteemed elder, named Sam Kai, whose collection was being housed there. And for this kupuna, this elder, this was his life's work. This was, He's 85 now, and this was 50 years worth of of carvings that he himself did, of collecting items from all over the South Pacific when he traveled on the Hokulea uh, double hold canoe voyaging um, project back in the 80s. And I had the, um, I had the, the burden, you could say, of telling him yesterday that his collection was gone. And it was devastating. 
it was a devastating. This is this man's life work. And he created all of these things, not for himself, but for future generations to understand how brilliant our Konakamaoli people are and how, how ingenious we were, because so much of that history and that culture was lost to us after the overthrow and with the, the, um, the new government and the wave of people that came in and took over lands, um, particularly we're talking about, you know, the plantations and the, the oligarchy that Kaniela was talking about. Uh, so many Hawaiians were dispossessed from their land and we lost so much of our culture, including our language. And so when a kupuna, when an elder like this dedicates his life to retrieving and retracing and remembering those pieces of ourselves that um, that allowed us to live here on this isolated island, how to make tools, how to make rope, how to make the, the instruments that feed us, um, all of these things that allowed us to have life and survive here, all of those things that he dedicated his life to are, are now a memory. But I will say, he told me yesterday morning that he woke up having a dream about seeds. And what he said was he saw us planting seeds back in that ash. He saw us putting back our traditional, our traditional plant, our traditional medicines, our kalo plant, our taro, which is very sacred to us. We're ancestrally connected to the kalo. He saw us putting those things back in the ground so that new life can come again. And for for somebody of his age who's who's closer to moving into the next realm than, than many of us, for him to still be thinking about the next generation and still be thinking about what the future could be in Lahaina, for me, is, is the measure of what it means to be Indigenous and what it means to be genealogically connected to this land. Nalania here. It is so painful to talk to you right now at this moment uh, with the destruction uh, that uh, your island has undergone. Um, if you could talk about the mutual yeah. aid efforts. You know, we, first of all, in the rest of the corporate media, we hear almost no Native voices, no Native Hawaiians, and why it's so important to hear your voices. And then what is happening on the ground? You know, there's a big debate now, like, why weren't people uh, alerted earlier? Where was the early alert system? Um, why were people just looking out the window or smelling the smoke and seeing the fire right in front of them um, and how important that is. But also, um, it's just described uh, Lahaina as a great tourist destination, how tourism has affected the whole environment, if you could speak about that as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, it's very um, disturbing for us as Kanakamali to see the headlines and talk about, you know, see Lahaina as this tourist town, as if that's all it is. Because for us, uh, it's it's so much more, and and the tourism is is part of the commodification of of our culture. It's part of the erasure of our culture. That narrative literally just takes us out of the picture. And you know, without Hawaiians, there would be no Hawaii. Everybody loves aloha, but they forget about the people that that breathe aloha into the world, the the root and the source of aloha. So, and that's the Kanaka Maoli people. Um, 
the the over tourism, the overdevelopment, the the dispossession of Kanakamali from our lands, the monocropping, as Kaniela Ng was talking about, those are all things that contributed to the conditions that created this. And you know, as we live on an island, there, there's only so much space and there's only so much room and there's only so much resources. And for over 130 years, our water has been diverted to go to those sugar plantations and pineapple fields. So what used to be a lush, verdant uh Lahaina. In fact, I'll tell you a little something that the Lahaina is not an old name. One of the older names for Lahaina is uh, Mala Ulu Olele, and it means land of the flying breadfruit, because Lahaina used to be covered in breadfruit, which was a staple for the Hawaiian diet. It's incredibly nutritious. It's being studied the world over to um, to help with food sovereignty uh, in underprivileged areas. It's just an amazing, rich, rich historical um plant for us. And Lahaina was covered with ulu until the sugar plantations came in and chopped it all down. And they they permanently changed our ecosystem with that one act. That on top of the diversion of water for the plantations, what's happening now uh, that the plantations have shut down is unscrupulous developers are diverting the water and banking it for real estate. And it's not real estate for the Kanakamali or the local people. It's for foreign investors. It's for gentlemen's estate farms that have giant swimming pools. Uh, it's for, excuse me, really inappropriate use of one of our most, our most sacred resources. In fact, the name for water in Hawaii is vai. And the name for wealth in Hawaii is vai vai, which means if you have water, you have life. But our water has been has been taken away from us and it's left us in this dry, barren, almost unrecognizable, um, it would be unrecognizable to our ancestors, this condition that we're currently living under, the settler government. Um, so you combine the you combine the dispossession with the over-tourism, with the over-development, and you have this trifecta um, for disaster and that's what we're seeing today it's absolute disaster it's absolute devastation and noelani we only have a minute and then we're going to go to a fire scientist at the university of um hawaii but the mutual aid efforts on the ground those grassroots efforts that are saving everyone Thank you. Um, the mutual aid group in Maui has mobilized. Um, we're working with them as we've got medics, um, food distribution. We're working on organizing housing for people. Um, but one of the issues that we're having is we're been, we're being prevented, um, access. And it's really, really disappointing because the people on the ground know what the community needs. The people on the ground self-organize and are able to move fast, quickly, and get the needs uh, of the people where they need to go. But unfortunately, there, there, I have to say, there has been some um, blocking of those efforts, and, and it's always done under the guise of safety. Um, but when our people are, on the, are, are in Lahaina and they're suffering because they don't have any food and they don't have any water, and we're not allowed to get them resources, it's really, really challenging. So we're finding some... some um, Unique ways to to get resources to people. Folks have been taking boats around uh, from the other side of the island in order to get to get resources in, and we've been using whatever methods we can to get the needs of the people met. 
but it's a beautiful effort. The people on the ground are so strong and so resilient and so ready to jump in to help one another. We say aloha ke kahi, ke kahi. That means love going out, love coming back. And one of my good friends said today, your your disaster emergency kit must include community. Community is first. And that's really what it's about is taking care of each other. Nailania here. I want to thank you so much for being with us and all the very best. Kanaka Maoli, activist, longtime organizer in Lahaina, co-founder of the organization Mauna Medic Healers Hui. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We go now from Maui to end today's show looking at how the deadly wildfires that spread through Maui came after weeks of worsening drought conditions as the climate emergency fuels deadly fires across the globe. The U.S. Drought Monitor reports nearly 16 percent of Maui County is now facing a severe drought, an additional 20 percent is facing moderate drought. We're joined in Honolulu by Clay Trauernicht, professor in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where he focuses on wildland fire management in Hawaii and the Pacific. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Clay Trauernicht. It's great to have you with us. Put these two issues together. You have the hurricane, hundreds of miles away, creates hurricane uh, winds um, that fuel these wildfires, and how this is connected to climate change. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, I just like to say how much I appreciate you um, highlighting the voices of your of your prior guests to uh, kind of round out the perspective on this this incident. But in terms of these um, the climate or weather events that we've seen, um, we had the combination of the storm passing to the south and this high pressure system that really ramped up winds and um, uh, lowered relative humidity. Uh, over the course of a couple of days. And, and what's really important to understand is that those really rapid changes in weather um, can have huge effects on fire danger. But the reason that they're having the effects they are is because of the landscape scale changes um, that your prior guests were mentioning. And that's the, the change in the vegetation surrounding um, the community in Lahaina, as well as the community upcountry Maui, which was experiencing similar fires um, and is still, which are still burning right now. And these are uh, changes that have affected uh, most of the most of the island uh, in the in the in the state in the sense that these change in land use over the past couple decades, the decline in agricultural production has really resulted in the dramatic expansion of these non-native tropical grasses. And and this really creates this vulnerability that we're seeing right now. And and the, um, you know, the the really explosive growth in fire uh, that that we, we saw over the past couple of days. Were you surprised by the scale of this disaster and now this debate over where were the early warning, you know, so many deaths and there are probably a number more, um, how it could uh, have been dealt with in a different way? I mean, you have the governor saying this is the worst um, uh, natural disaster in Hawaii's history. Yeah, I I. I think we're clearly grappling with the human toll. This is something that's absolutely unprecedented. And I don't think, I mean, just the loss and hearing these stories that you, of your, of your prior guests, I mean, this is gonna, it's still sinking in for all of us, just how dramatic this is and, and just what the impact that this has had on the people, like, first of all, first and foremost, um, as far as the, uh, 
unprecedented nature of these fires. Unfortunately, this is something we've been seeing over the past decade at least. Um, and we can look back to uh, 2019, where 21 homes were lost in West Maui due to similar fires. Um, the same year, we had about 20,000 acres burned through central Maui. Um, 2018, we actually had a near pass of, of another hurricane system that uh, coincided with large-scale fires on uh, Oahu, uh, on the west side of Oahu. And in each of these incidents, what we're seeing, uh, I think as your first guest mentioned, is our uh, the, the firefighters we have on the ground, That those are the resources we have. They were spread incredibly thin over this past week. They're you know doing everything that they can. And as far as what we can do, and by we, I mean the 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 response agencies that we work with, the nonprofits, Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization, I have to give them credit too, but we're trying to get the word out um, and identify the actions that communities and land managers can take uh, prior to, to these fires and so that we can reduce risk, create safer conditions, and, and sort of relieve the burden, which at this point really falls onto our emergency responders. Um, Another element or dimension to this change in land use or the, the um, limited uh Limited management we see on these on these lands, these these tropical grasslands that cover the state is about a million acres. Is that as those operations uh, have kind of removed from the landscape, you lose a lot of the knowledge that was there from the workers who uh, knew where the roads were, were maintaining the roads, maintaining water access. So again, all of this burden uh, falls on our firefighters, um, and we're we're asking them to do really heavy lifting. And up until this incident, we also have to say they've done a commendable job um, of really protecting our communities. This is, uh, as you said, this is the worst we've ever seen. And all of the fires that we have seen over the past um, couple decades since, since agriculture has been declining, our, our firefighters are typically very successful at, at protecting homes, uh, infrastructure, and human lives. Professor Tronick, uh, President Biden has pledged disaster relief, immediate assistance to those affected. But what would it mean if he actually outright declared not just a state emergency in Hawaii, a national climate emergency, a national state of emergency. It's a difficult question for Hawaii. Um, we struggle here having uh, long-term funding in place. And part of that reason, as far as the relationship with the federal government, and again, I can only really speak to the fire realm, fire management realm, is that um, we don't have these large tracts of federal land. Uh, and that's usually the mechanism through which, um, you know, National Forests, Bureau of Land Management, these are the mechanisms, uh, at least in the continental U.S., that, that uh, funding kind of comes in for this kind of work. And what we're talking about um, for a disaster like this to prevent the next one is to support these efforts on the ground that are actually altering the condition of those fuels. And there are lots of examples, lots of people working on this, ranging from working with ranchers to do targeted grazing, um, doing fuel break networks to give firefighters a fighting chance, uh, re-implementing traditional agriculture. There's examples of folks um, restoring taro, low-e wetland taro to actually act as fire breaks, uh, all the way through to reforestation, where we're converting these fuels uh, into something else, something less likely to burn. And I think, you know, our job, the, what we've been working on, the folks uh, doing fire prevention work for, for the number of years now, is just how do we scale this up? And so that's really what we need to be thinking about uh, with assistance from the federal government, is how can we implement these actions that and the knowledge that people already have, how can we do that at, at larger scales, coordinate across uh, bigger, bigger well, spaces? 
is, uh, and, Professor, and this is something that needs to happen statewide. Professor Clay Charanek, we thank you so much for being with us from the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.